What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In Season 2, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now, your host, award-winning architect-turned-entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is Chris Mazzola. Chris is the Director of Development at Bijou Properties, a developer focused on residential-anchored mixed-use developments in New Jersey. He has been at the company for seven years and has shaped many of their major projects in this process, from acquisitions all the way to leasing. Previously, he worked at J.P. Morgan and Brookfield Properties. We will talk about the 770 House, a new major mixed-use development in Hoboken, New Jersey, that's currently just wrapped up with leasing. On the heels of Hurricane Henri and Ida, we will also talk about the realities of climate change for urban real estate portfolios and how those challenges can potentially be mitigated. Thank you so much for being here with us, Chris. Thanks, Atif. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So let's dive right in. You're a Long Island guy who moved to Hoboken, so you're just like me. And you had a four-year interlude, though, in Cleveland for college. Tell us about that and how you made your way back to New York. So yes, I am a Long Island guy, as you say, born and raised. But today, I wouldn't classify myself as that. Hoboken, New Jersey is where I live, work, and you know most of our projects are developed there. So really, that's where I would geographically define myself as a characteristic. I spent most of my youth traveling around the United States and internationally. So once I graduated from Chaminade High School in Long Island, I just want to try something geographically different. And that led me to Case Western Reserve University in Hoboken, in Cleveland, Ohio, where I pursued a BS in finance. After four years, I was ready to get back to New York fairly quickly, Manhattan specifically. But Mm -hmm. in May of 2009, as you can imagine, there weren't too many opportunities for someone looking to work on Wall Street. So Mm -hmm. with Dismal Prospects, I really just bided my time. I found my way into... um, NYU's master's in real estate program where I pursued finance. Mm -hmm. And that's really what cemented my desire to work in real estate. And after graduating that program, after two years, I landed my dream job at JP Morgan working on their acquisitions team covering the Northeast. Within a few years, really good years coming out of the recovery, Mm -hmm. I had a couple of billion dollars worth of acquisitions in office, residential and retail under my belt. And I was ready to start thinking about the next step. Remember when people used to go to the office? <laughs> I just thought about the office acquisitions. So you graduated, you said from the, it's the Shack Institute at NYU, right? Correct. So you're at JP Morgan, you're doing awesome acquisitions projects. 
why did you make the move into development? And then why more specifically Bijou Properties? Well, I would love to say that I forged my own path, mm-hmm. but really I had an easy opportunity that was put in front of me. Larry Bijou, who is the company's founder and managing partner, he's my stepfather. So there's always an opportunity and an open door for mm-hmm. me to pursue working there. And really, though we don't discuss it this way, I guess I'm second generation. So once I had cut my teeth in the real world, it was just a natural progression for me to join Bijou Properties, albeit on my own timeline, you know, in my own terms. So you're the director of development, but you're responsible for more than just the design and the construction of the company's projects. What would you describe your day-to-day looking like? Really, no two days are exactly the same. And I think it really just depends on which of the various projects I'm working at the time, which stage of development they're in, either Mm pre-development or construction. So I really try to plan my weeks or, you know, focus on one project a day. It never really works out that way. But just for the sake of argument, if I'm focusing on one project and I'm in the construction phase, it's really just my schedule is a little more straightforward. It's Mm -hmm. working with the general contractors, making sure that we're on time, on budget, really via the OAC meeting schedule. On the side, I'm working with leasing and marketing, various third-party consultants mm-hmm. and property managers just to get our operating budgets in line and make sure that when we open, you know, we're, you know, hit the ground running. If it's pre-development, that's where my schedule is a little bit more sporadic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can wake up and say, I'm gonna work on this, this, or this. You know, I could open up, you know, my phone, see a social media post by a local advocacy group covering you know, local parks or, mm-hmm. you know, a local bike advocacy group. And I say, okay, you know, that's sort of what I need to focus on today. So I'll reach out to the person who is a president of that respective local group. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, I could just be, you know, walking around Hoboken, just trying to get an idea of what that particular group's vision is for Hoboken and trying to incorporate that into our project. Because, you know, placemaking is very key for Bijou properties. And a lot starts at the computer level or, Mm -hmm. you know, on the site to understand, you know, what makes this site special? Do the numbers work? But it's the various stakeholders that really are the ones that are important, you know, from the get-go just to implement, you know, their vision into our vision and make sure it's a successful project. So when you said OEC, that stands for Owner, Architect, Contractor, right? Correct. Got it. And uh, with placemaking, talk us through what that means for the firm. The reason being that and of the cities that you work in are historic cities that have architectural history, cultural history for many decades, if not longer. Does placemaking there, say, mean something different than, say, for example, like the Newport neighborhood of Jersey City, which didn't really exist till just a short while ago? I think placemaking really starts at the core of, you know, what that particular neighborhood needs. No two neighborhoods are exactly the same. So, mm-hmm. Some neighborhoods might need more open space. Some might need a local school. Some might need a local theater, you know, on the arts and culture side. So we start looking at the site that we like, typically in high barrier to entry markets, Mm -hmm. just because we're not so competitive that we look around and say, we want to find, you know, the most ready to go project and the best municipality. We say, Mm -hmm. what's the best municipality we can find? What's the best site within that respective municipality that we can find and work from there. And then, you know, 
our bread and butter is really multifamily mixed use. Mm -hmm. So typically, if the numbers work, the next step is, okay, well, there's typically an entitlement aspect to getting this project approved. I mean, if the project's already approved, it's typically not really within our wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. If the site is, call it, zone industrial or something other than residential, we have to take it through the land use process or the redevelopment process, depending on what kind of zone it's in. Mm -hmm. So placemaking really... What it means to you know a New Jersey developer is what does that neighborhood need? What does mm-hmm. that neighborhood want? Sometimes neighborhoods don't necessarily know what they want, and often I not to sound cliche, but I think you look at Steve Jobs, and you know he didn't wait for people to tell him what they wanted, right? I mean, when the iPhone came out in two thousand seven, people were happy with their clamshell phones, with their you know less than uh, I think you know terrible cameras, but is something we didn't know we needed. And it's really up to us as developer, you know, in order to get from A, which is finding the site to Z, which is, you know, building the project, leasing it up is B is really, you know, the first step is what does that neighborhood want? Because they're not going to be entirely open to what we propose. Mm -hmm. So if you can find something that the neighborhood wants, like a school, like a theater, like open space and execute it well, then those people who are sometimes in opposition will be, your advocate. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's really something that we take a lot of pride in. And the first meeting with these local groups, it's never, you know, rightfully so their caution is up and it's up to us to make them think differently. And we have a track record and that helps a lot. But sometimes you walk into a room and say, you think someone knows who you are. And, you know, I did this so many times in Hoboken as a success. (laughs) And, you know, it's always like, How's this going to affect my parking? How's this going to affect my driving in and out of town? And, you know, thing I'll add to that is, you know, we like to build things typically on a larger scale because the larger the project typically means you can um, create more by way of placemaking. So a 30 unit project, you know, the way the numbers stack up is you can't do as much as you would in a dollars and cents side of things as a 424 unit project, like 770 house. So with the- For people, or just a quick question, Chris, for people to have a gauge of what small, medium, and large would mean in Hoboken, would you consider 30 units like a mid-sized project in Hoboken or small? I would consider 30 to, you know, 70 units sort of mid-size. Mid-size, okay. You know, you can really point to a handful of large-scale projects in Hoboken. Mm -hmm. It's not like Jersey City where you say large scale and they say, left to right in front of me or behind me, they're all over. Hoboken, yeah. it's, you know, either large scales on the waterfront, which yep. ultimately led to the development of the waterfront from what it was, you know, prior to it, which was somewhere you wouldn't want to go. That would be the the Hudson T projects by Toll Brothers. Correct. That okay. or the shipyard or the mm-hmm. W downtown. All these projects on in Hoboken on the waterfront, you know, they were part of the, you know, stakeholder process with, you know, local residents. And sure, it wasn't easy for them then, much like it isn't always easy for us, but we understand that. And we try to create something special. And ultimately, I live in Hoboken, Larry Bijou mm-hmm. is in Hoboken, and it'd be difficult for us to walk around, go to a restaurant, and mm-hmm. in the back of our mind, knowing we didn't create something that people didn't love. You know, it's great when people interrupt you at dinner and they say, you know, you might not remember me. I was the first person to say, hated your project when it was on a board in a big community room. But, you know, I live there now. The park has been realized and I take my kids there every day after school. That's special. I think that what I love about your description is this idea that it is likely inevitable that a developer is going to have a bullseye on their back 
that they can't change. But the question is, how do you actually respond to that situation? And I think that some developers may choose the path assuming that they know what's best and what they want to do will happen. And I think there's probably a small select few of people that that do what you described, which is actually start the conversation before it gets to a contentious kind of environment and then look for some of that information to help shape what you're proposing. I think that's that's absolutely spectacular. So I want to talk about 770 House. Uh, so 770 House is located in Hoboken. And tell me about some of the unique aspects of that particular site. I'd like to focus more so on the experience when you walk into the building, but mm-hmm. it'd be hard to ignore you know, what's around the building. Mm-hmm. When we first approached that site in that neighborhood, it was not a place you'd really want to go unless you were going to the Monroe Center for the Arts, which mm-hmm. 10 years ago was developed as an adaptive reuse commercial building. It has, over time, it developed into about 100 different kind of small retail and office tenants. And if you wanted to take your kids, you would, you know, for pottery making classes, for dance classes, for for anything really, that's a place you would go, but you wouldn't linger there. There was a lot of adjacent sites that were junkyards, warehouses with many previous heavy industry uses there. So it wasn't technically safe. What we did was we assembled all the land that we could put together in that area, Mm -hmm. which eventually comprised three acres we said, okay, this is in a redevelopment zone. That's a good starting point. But the redevelopment plan at the time was about 20 years old. So mm-hmm. it wasn't indicative of modern tastes and modern planning. So mm-hmm. what we did was we concentrated density into one building, opened up roughly two acres of open space. It's a lot in a small city. Like Hoboken's only one square mile, right? Yeah, it's one square mile. So, you know, when people say, like, you develop in Hoboken, like, where do you develop? It's always the outer edge. So it's where people don't get their shoes dirty going to when they walk out of the path or you know uh-huh. off the ferry in the waterfront. It's I would call it Northwest Hoboken, which there are mm-hmm. a lot of large format or full block industrial sites prime for mm-hmm. redevelopment. So anyway, we put together about 424 units, and our plan was don't you know develop and donate two acres of open space to the city which manifested itself in a gymnasium, a large quad, grassy quad, and then just like a hard and an active and passively hardscaped and, and landscaped plaza. That project was, you know, probably a two-year approval process. From there, we developed the 424 units, which was mm-hmm. out of scale for the neighborhood. But by way of what we were giving, it was, you know, certainly a net benefit, you know, exceedingly net benefit, not just quantitatively, but qualitatively to the residents. So we developed that and it was a real risk because people come to Hoboken and they say, well, I want to, you know, be close to the path train because I commute mm-hmm. to Manhattan or, you know, I want to be close to the waterfront because I want to, you know, city view or be, mm-hmm. you know, always reminded I'm close to Manhattan. We're about as far west as you could go. You're literally right up against the Palisades, right? We're up against the Palisades. We were in an area no one really ever would want to linger, as I mentioned, unsafe mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, definitely blighted, if I'm going to use that word. And we developed this you know, really high-end market rate with um, an affordable component. And right out of the gate, we started leasing in August 2019. And within six months, we were exceeding our underwriting, which is always a great thing when you underwrite something and has entitlement risk. And maybe it takes a little longer to approve. but if you have a vision and you stick to it, sometimes the market responds. I shouldn't say sometimes in our experience, the market always responds. Mm-hmm. People want quality. They want place-making aspects that make 
living in a city like Hoboken more habitable. So I would say locationally, our site really created a nucleus for the neighborhood. So once you get there, you know, you see all the parks and the plaza and everything around there. The Monroe Center for the Art was really the commercial anchor for the area. Once mm-hmm. you step into the lobby, you know, it wasn't going to be the neighborhood that kept you there. It was going to be the building. And a lot of developers these days are talking about resort style living. And it's kind of like the buzzword, which is green. You have to use the word sustainable and, and you yeah. know, mean it via the various sustainable frameworks. You can't just say green, but yeah. let's just call you know, resort style living, sort of the mm-hmm. green in this aspect. You know, I don't consider myself cool, but you know, I know cool people or I know how to hire. You're a pretty cool guy. That's I'll, I'll give you that. Yeah. I appreciate that. But yeah, we try to identify, well, as a developer, you got to identify the people who know what they're talking about. So, sure. you know, when we talk about resort style living, you know, mm-hmm. the architect laid everything out, but really came down to the finishes and the experience within the building. So we hired a firm out of Brooklyn that mm-hmm. actually based in industry city, they're actually an interior designer and fabricator. So their name is Factioned and they immediately knew what to do. They immediately knew how to, I don't even want to say respond to the market because they weren't responding to the market. They were creating a new creating offering market. in the market. Yeah. I mean, you see a lot of these offering of finishes within the units. I mean, every unit's going to have the stainless steel package. It's going to mm-hmm. have, you know, the same cabinets, you know, now every cabinet's going to the ceiling where it can very similar. In this case, yes, I would say they were trying something relatively different on the unit finishes, but it was really the experiences you know, within the building, we had about 40,000 square feet of amenity space. Mm-hmm. And that was a bit overwhelming because, you know, when we BG Properties were working with our architect, you kind of create these boxes and you say, man, that's a lot of space. And how do you connect it? How do you create an experience? You know, it's easier when all the space is consolidated, but mm-hmm. we had a vision where people don't really want to be, you know, you don't want a club room next to a work from home space or from home wasn't really what it was called business center, whatever you want to call it. They said, no, this is an asset. Having the spaces separate is an asset. We know how to kind of create a signage package and wayfinding to make it like you would be in a hotel. So mm-hmm. that's where we kind of left them to it. And, you know, they really did an incredible job. So as soon as you walk in the building, you know, you have these custom accent pieces in the lobby. And mm-hmm. they were all fabricated actually at Factions Industry City a Warehouse. So you mean uh, custom lighting fixtures or custom artwork? Custom lighting fixtures, sculptural lighting features. Some of the images that I shared with you, there's mm-hmm. a three-story tall planter wall. And it really acts as a kind of like in-your-face wow moment as soon as you walk in. So mm-hmm. that's really everyone's first impression. And then, you know, what's going to compel you to like keep walking in this building? People's attention span is very short. And, you know, if they can figure it out online, maybe though they don't feel like they mm-hmm. need to come in. And, you know, especially nowadays where you can do virtual tours throughout buildings, but a lot of the images on our website don't do the actual spaces justice. Mm-hmm. So hopefully what they do is they compel people to want to come to our building. You know, oh, that's a cool fitness center. Oh, it's got a great view or, oh, hey, this is a really nice pool deck. And it's, you know, it's got all these things. So it's creating a desire for people to want to come in and see it for themselves. And then once we can get them into that building, then they can see, you know, maybe being on the waterfront in Hoboken isn't, you know, where I want to be. Maybe being next to the path isn't where I want to be because there are other places in Hoboken where I can live and have the quality of life that I want. And, mm-hmm. you know, I heard from a resident today who I'm friendly with. They said, the problem is I don't leave the building. There's a gym. Mm-hmm. 
there's a pool, there's a lot of open space out front. And Mm -hmm. many times, you know, I've lived in an amenity building, heavily amenitized building before. And, you know, you think you tell yourself, oh, well, I'm going to do laps in the lap pool or I'm going (laughs) to work out in the gym all the time. That's kind of like, you know, the, what gets you. And then after like two months, you're just like, you know, why am I paying this amenity fee? Why am I living here? What we found is, you know, we're having above market retention rates. Mm-hmm. So if the market typically has a 50, 50% of the people will stay there, you know, when their lease expires, 50% will leave to go somewhere else. We're seeing, you know, in the 60s, mid 60s, which that 15% means a lot from a operation standpoint, from a underwriting standpoint. You know, we did come to market, you know, right before the pandemic set in. So I wouldn't say it wasn't without its challenges. We opened in August 2019. And six months in, we said, oh, wow, we're going to lease up this building in one year. That's 382 market rate units. The rest were affordable. So mm-hmm. they were leasing up quite well as well. Are those on a wait list, the affordable units, or are those done in a very similar way to market rate? The way it works is we hire a separate company who mm-hmm. handles only affordable units, and we work with them very closely. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's usually on a waiting list. So that's how it works. So then I just want to highlight a few things. So the in terms of the numbers of this project, it's uh, 14 stories tall, 424 units, both market rate and affordable, 40,000 square foot of amenities. That's that's a lot. And I think that's that's really cool. You guys spread it out through the building. And then there's also 25,000 square feet of retail. Is that leased up or what's what's the story with that? We're about 60% leased up. Okay. Oh, so you've chopped it up into different spaces. The retail is about 60% leased up. Okay. The multifamily aspect is 95% leased up. So for all intents and purposes, it's stabilized. The retail, I think in 2021, 2020, 2019, 2018, retail has been a Gosh. challenge. You know, you don't have to be a, an analyst to understand that mm-hmm. e-commerce has been dominating our retail landscape. Mm-hmm. So I think, and this is something I, I very often tell whichever municipality we're working with on the entitlement side is that... The right kind of retail that we want here, you know, if we're going to call it a curated retail, where we say, okay, mm-hmm. you know, we have twenty five thousand square feet of space. We know we want a restaurant. We know we want a cafe. Things of this nature. Laundry, laundry is going to, you know, you're going to find laundry immediately. Every building yeah. knows they have a captive audience. So, mm-hmm. you know, laundry is the first person. You know, the first tenants come in and say, "I'll pay whatever you want. Get me in this building. You know, mm-hmm. I want to take this off the market." But it's a little harder with those tenants that are really going to be the ones adding to the placemaking aspect of it. So whenever I speak to municipalities, I have to say like the multifamily is going to have no problem. People want to mm-hmm. live in Hoboken. It's highest and best use. Retail, I think there just needs to be an awareness that the retail that we want in a neighborhood that's going to mm-hmm. create a neighborhood, it needs to be subsidized by the landlord. In some cases, it's a loss leader. When we you know, design space as a restaurant... For lack of a better word, they just say, can you build it for us? You know, can you take it, you know, all the way? And we say, well, we're not an architect. You know, we're not contractors. We don't know what you want. And they're like, okay, well, so you're telling me I have to hire someone? Yeah, you have to hire someone. Okay, can you pay for it? So it's very difficult. It's a lot more hands-on. You know, for a project like 770 House, the focus wasn't so much on creating the retail experience Mm -hmm. as creating the neighborhood experience via the you know, open space and the parks and the plazas. That's not to say we didn't try to find the best retail users possible. A lot of the food and beverage uses just couldn't come around and they couldn't mm-hmm. justify 
an area that doesn't have as much foot traffic as call it Main Street, which you know, Maine and Maine and Hoboken is Washington Street. Mm-hmm. They just couldn't justify it. So we were finding that all these term sheets we were getting was, you know, so heavily disadvantaged to ourselves. So yep. we had to, you know, we sit up, you know, we, we waited two years and then we found good tenants, but it's not the tenant that's going to be a cafe. It's not going to be mm-hmm. a bookstore in other neighborhoods where, you know, we were afforded the opportunity to say, okay, there's not such a large retail element or the retail isn't really carrying the pro forma. Mm-hmm. You know, we can say like, okay, we'll take this loss and we'll put a bookstore in there. And, you know, we put a rock climbing gym in one building. Mm-hmm. We put a cafe bookstore in another. We put um, a culinary cooking school and then even another. So these are uses that we really like and create neighborhoods. And I think it's great when a municipality understands that in order for this to be a neighborhood, in order for placemaking to really take off, we understand that retail is going to be a loss leader for you. And that's not always the case from an acceptance side on the approval side. Let me ask you this. I think that what you brought up is really emblematic of any residential anchored mixed uses. What the heck are you doing on the first floor? And in terms of earlier economic downturns, uh, Jersey City, particularly in the Heights neighborhood, temporarily, which ended up being for decades, allowed residential on the ground floor, which I don't think is something that you would want to do, uh, given the look and the feel and what you're trying to do. But have you guys thought of perhaps some of these retail uses that you see are core to placemaking that being a spinoff business for Bijou Properties to have like Bijou restaurants or Bijou daycare or something else like that. I'm sure you've had that, like at least an internal batted that around, right? We have had our foray in, you know, <laughs> very specifically curating, you know, redevelopments towards a restaurant space. Uh-huh. And much like I was saying before, you know, we had to basically become investors more than just mm-hmm. landlords become investors. So take it through the approval process for that tenant, you know, invest mm-hmm. in the property. And all I can say is, Restaurant business is a tough business. And I think unless you have an operator who knows exactly what they're doing and has a track Mm -hmm. record and has a balance sheet, all we can do as landlords is say, you know, here's the largest tenant improvement allowance that we can give you. Here's the people you should hire to do it. Mm -hmm. But we don't want to be involved in your business because we learn from that. I mean, we've invested with failed businesses, failed restaurants in our buildings, and it's never really fun. I think in that regard, I want to pivot a little bit towards the design and the planning process and specifically all the care that your firm put into the water management and the mitigation. Could you talk our listeners through what that process was like and what were the things that you included in the project to to manage water issues that would be present in the west side of Hoboken? Yeah, well, I think... Hoboken's identity is largely focused to the outside world as a city that floods. And (laughs) while it irks me, you know, we've had at least three heavy storms this summer and heavy flooding, you know, occurred. So because we are creating these large scale developments in Hoboken, we have to be solving these issues, not creating more issues. We're not taking up impermeable lot coverage or typically either putting in impermeable, but then there's a green roof or something incorporated within it for stormwater mitigation. For a 770 house, that's in a part of town, which when, let's just say Sandy, when Sandy hit, it Mm -hmm. created almost like a vacuum for the water, the storm surge to come in and it just sat there. So 
we knew that it didn't matter how much we liked the neighborhood or how much we trusted our vision to create something special. We just knew that flooding would always be a lingering issue. So time to build a lake. Time, yeah, <laughs> a big lagoon out front as an amenity. <laughs> so what we did was we said, okay, well, the best we can do is bring in engineers who know huh. what they're talking about because I don't know how to solve flooding issues. We work with the city and North Hudson Sewerage Authority who have a long-term control plan to effectively mitigate stormwater runoff to engineer a system, which ultimately manifested itself in a half a million underground detention system. Half a million cubic square feet or what's the measure? Half a million gallons. Gallons, gallons. Okay. So it'll hold, you know, if there's a heavy storm, whatever rain hits the surface, it'll ultimately end up in this half a million gallon underground tank. Mm-hmm. And it'll be held back until, you know, the storm lines have, you know, wet out enough water. And then North Hudson Sewerage Authority, which is our local sewerage utility, mm-hmm. they can remotely control an OptiValve, which or an actuator that are released to stormwater. So it's a mm-hmm. very complicated engineered system. And it's not what you can see. That's one of the best benefits or best amenities of living in that mm-hmm. building. It's what you can't see. Everyone likes the parks and, you know, the gymnasium and day one, you know, kids are running around, right? That's great. But when we had our first series of storms last summer, didn't flood. And that area always flooded. Surrounding areas flooded. So we never had any major issues. So I think even this last storm or during Mm -hmm. Hurricane Ida, we had no flooding in the streets and other parts of town where we have other buildings, they all flooded. Well, let me ask you this. So given that you put the care and the cost and the effort and everything into a mitigation plan. What if your neighbors are all bozos and they didn't do anything? Would you just keep on drawing the water that they're throwing off? How do you prevent that from happening? In that area in particular, you know, most of the buildings are three or four family townhomes. So Got it. Okay. they're not really contributing to any stormwater mitigation. One, by virtue of when they were built. I mean, mm-hmm. that wasn't really top priority when they were built 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Also, there's only so much you can do with a, a small lot. You know, mm-hmm. we were dealing with three acres. So two of those acres being open space, we were able to kind of spread out that underground attention system. So it was a real opportunity. Okay. And then I am going to pause here and let our listeners know that uh, we're having our first affordable housing developer on the show next month. That's Joanna Anderson, uh, who's the executive director of Ithaca Neighborhood Housing Services. Her work is uh, even more important now as millions of New Yorkers still struggle to secure uh, safe housing that meets their budget during the pandemic. Uh, So make sure to subscribe to the American Building Podcast so you don't miss any of our terrific season two episodes. So you mentioned, Chris, the uh, hurricanes that we had this season, Henri and Ida. And uh, when we last spoke, you actually were walking around Hoboken surveying the, the impacts to your particular buildings. What other ways do you stay on top of these really sensitive, important issues for your properties? I think most of our projects to date have been in Hoboken, as mm-hmm. I mentioned, where I live and where my office is. So it's not really hard to you know find out what's going on in your neighborhood, in our neighborhood where we develop. So I spent a lot of time just talking to local businesses, mm-hmm. just spending time on foot, not you know nine to five, but after hours on weekends talking to people. Sure. And you find out a lot that way. So I think there's a real significance, a real value to being a hyper-local developer in that you're not just coming in from 30,000 feet 
and saying, what are the problems here? Okay. And then, you know, leaving, you know. So sometimes I almost have to be an active resident myself and say, mm-hmm. like, this is a problem in my particular neighborhood. This is what we need. And then we're developers, so we can enact change. So when we incorporate these things into our projects, you know, we can speak from experience, but it's not, you know, then when we speak to, you know, when we try to create support for our projects, mm-hmm. people can agree with you. They might not agree with the height or the look or certain things of the building, but they agree about what the problems are. And if we're solving the problems, at least we're starting off in somewhat of a good place. I think that that's a really good point that you bring up this idea of identifying a problem and then being able to look towards a solution as opposed to allocate blame. So you mentioned the water infrastructure that you've set up or mitigation you've set up for 770 house held up well. And then from the past projects that you've done, as well as this one, what are some of the, the best practices that you will continue implementing in your future projects? I would say we wouldn't really change anything that we haven't done for 20 years. Good point. I've only yep. been at the company for seven years, but there's problem solving, which, mm-hmm. you know, placemaking can be part of the problem solving equation too. You go to a, a neighborhood and it's not really a neighborhood. There's really no place to call the center of that neighborhood. So mm-hmm. development is a lot about problem solving. And it's not about just saying, how do I solve to an IRR so I can get investors and a bank to financing it, mm-hmm. to finance it? Of course, that's, I wouldn't call that a problem, but you're solving to something. Mm-hmm. A local, you know, a problem for local residents who have really no incentive to see our projects get developed if they can't benefit in some way. So, you know, the case is always just going to create more parking issues, more traffic issues and things of that nature. But sometimes people don't realize well, the closest park is five blocks away. Don't you want something nearby? Or, you know, we're creating 25,000 square feet of retail. Don't you want a local place to shop or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that? So I think I don't want to focus on the open space aspect of it, but, you know, Hoboken as a whole certainly, you know, is really a question of neighborhoods and every mm-hmm. neighborhood needs its own thing. So we don't really have to do anything differently. I mean, when we have a new project, a new site in Hoboken, we already know what the problems are. And mm-hmm. what Larry Biji started doing 20 years ago is, is what we're doing today. I think what you're describing about collaboration, about being upfront and having a comprehensive long-term solution to the problem seems to be a great template for many of the other cities across coastal New Jersey and New York that face very similar problems to Hoboken. So thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Chris. If you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever it is that you like to listen. You all know real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Hear from me, the team at Michael Graves, and many of our spectacular guests like Chris on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach beyond the boundaries we see and the boundaries we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Chris and I have made donations to the Sierra Club of New Jersey, which focuses on preventing and addressing climate change and other environmental challenges in the Garden State. 
I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building by Michael Graves. <laughs>